This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to begin sort of four parts to the lecture. The last part is the biggest, which is on Aquinas. But I want to begin with some observations and a few data points about the current culture, um, none of which are, are very um, optimistic or hopeful, but they're there. Uh, the, the things at least that I want to talk about in the culture are, are not good signs, I think, but they do have something to, uh, to say to us if we're thinking about engaging in uh, discussion with people who disagree with us on the basis of religion or anything else. Uh, and then I'd, I'd like to say just a little bit about pluralism, since that is a term in the title and, um, and has a lot of different meanings. Then I, I'd just like to say something very briefly about two contemporary books that address this topic. And then I'd like to talk about Aquinas. And I think how Aquinas is an exemplar for us uh, for these questions of engaging in dialogue uh, in a pluralistic setting uh, with uh, people who might disagree with us deeply about any number of matters. So, it's interesting studies, uh, I recall um, during the Kavanaugh hearings, which it, it seemed like things couldn't get worse than what we were experiencing culturally during the Kavanaugh hearings, but they've gotten worse. Uh, and I recall John Haidt uh, from NYU, the social psychologist, tweeting something about if you want to know how we got to the public culture we have right now. Uh, and he um, uh, posted, the, uh, uh, tweeted the data from this survey that had been done regularly starting in the 80s up to, uh, up to just uh, our own time. And the, the question that everyone was asked to respond to is, do you hate members of the other or opposite political party? The, the respondents uh, across the spectrum in America to that question from about the 80s up to, oh, 2005 to 2010 is where it really starts to go up, was at about 15%. It was hovering, I don't know where it is now, this was during the Kavanaugh hearings, it was at about 48% of Americans said that they hated members of the, uh, of the other political party. And if you've been on Twitter you know that it doesn't take much. In fact, it really doesn't matter what the main tweet is. Five subtweets in, people are fighting about political matters that are not directly connected to the main tweet. And the, uh, the working assumption, the default position, is that if anyone disagrees with me, that person must be both stupid and malicious. And therefore, I have every right to inform that person of how stupid he or she is and to accuse them of every uh, manner of evil and vice. Uh, the other interesting data point, in addition to the rise in what we might call civic hatred, I mean, going back to classical philosophy and up to the founding of America, there's certainly a concern with healthy constitutions and functioning of laws but there's also a concern in classical politi political theory of which Aquinas is himself something of an advocate that, uh, that we develop civic friendship uh, across disagreements. And the ancients were fond of saying that, uh, that where you had degrees of friendship, you had less litigation. 
And where trust declines in a society, resolving disputes through litigation will increase, which is why we all now look for all important matters to deliverances of the Supreme Court, because we fight things up to the point where uh, the court of last resort decides our most important matters. The other, uh, the other data point that I wanted to mention is that so we wrote a piece a year or so ago for the Dallas Morning News about this, but there was a Brookings study of um, both political parties and uh, ex extreme, you might say, strong believers, I won't use the word extremists, in each political party and moderates. And the, the survey was intending to get at the question, how accurate are the opinions of folks on one side of the political spectrum in their beliefs about what people on the other side hold, think, do, et cetera. The really interesting point about this was that it was the people who are most active politically who were most wrong about their opponents. I would, uh, I would uh, guess that that's because if you're extremely politically active in social media, you are, for a large part, operating under the assumption that people who oppose you politically are both stupid and evil. And so you're inclined to think the worst things about them. People, the moderates actually had the most accurate, the moderates on the left and the moderates on the right, the people who were not all that active politically, had the most accurate views of people in the opposite party. That's an interesting twist or something that couldn't have been anticipated when the Federalists wanted, uh, in the Federalist Papers, when the authors wanted to have an active and informed citizenry. There's something really peculiar going on in our society where the people who are most active and in one sense most informed are also the most likely to be wrong about fellow citizens. Something interesting going on there and something not all that healthy. If I had to describe our political moment, I would say it's a moment of ideological insanity. Uh, we can talk about who's more insane, uh, and from minute to minute, it looks a little bit different. Um, I have my own views about these things, but, but it, it is a time of ideological insanity, partly fostered by social media, and we know that the algorithms of social media are designed to feed us if we're, if we're headed down and, uh, and we're sort of obsessed with certain kinds of views uh, about the opposition or about our own view, algorithms uh, on social media are designed to feed us more and more of that kind of stuff. And cable TV seems designed to keep us all in a fever pitch of anger at every moment of every uh, uh, waking hour. I think it's also the case that we are, it is the case that we are at a time when there are lots of big issues that we are deeply opposed on as Americans. And so we tend to think that every battle is a, uh, a, a win or lose, an all or nothing kind of battle. And this ratchets up on both sides, right? So that uh, each thing that one side does seems to call forth not an equal and opposite, but an opposite 
and vastly accelerated response on the other side. It's, a, it's Newton's new law for American politics, right? It's not an equal and opposite reaction that we breed in one another. It's an opposite and, and astronomically higher reaction. So that we confirm in each side confirms in the other the worst instincts and worst judgments we have about one another. It's really difficult in that context to think about how to engage. Um, I don't have a cure for that, and, uh, and my topic is not necessarily about that larger cultural framework that we're now operating in. I, I do think that we need to be, doesn't mean that we shouldn't fight and argue. Um, democracies are, are about, uh, about robust debate that's, and people are gonna get their feelings hurt and be unhappy and friendships can be lost in the course of debate. But it is something I think we need to be aware of that there are pressures operating on each of us. And, there, and the more active we are in social media, likely it is that the greater the pressure will be on us. Okay, that just by way of framing. Oh, one other observation that really strikes me as not a good sign. We seem to have given up on conversion story uh, in the culture. We don't want, we don't especially prize the story of someone who has left the opposing side and joined ours because they've been persuaded by argument. What we, what we seem to take delight in doing is, uh, is destroying people who disagree with us and wanting to, uh, to enhance and increase those stories of destruction as lessons for other people who might step out of line. Right? It, it is striking to me that conversion stories, political or otherwise, are not as prominent in the culture as they used to be. If, if the data points I've given you are accurate, and I think they are, um, we, might, uh, there might, we might have an explanation for that, right? Because conversion stories are about people moving from a certain position and being persuaded to adopt the truth of another position. I think we're not interested in conversion stories because we're not patient enough for them. Uh, we want an immediate ideological lining up and destruction, uh, but also because I fear that we really have given up on truth in our public life to some extent, because conversion stories are testimonies to the truth, and the, wherever you have a prominence of conversion stories, you're going to have people who are fundamentally committed to a view of the truth but also to the power of the truth, to move others from where they might be toward the truth, and indeed to move each of us further toward the truth. So increase in civic hatred, um, increase in, um, uh, in misinformation or erroneous judgment about uh, fellow citizens, uh, and then a lack of interest and a decline a lack of interest in and a decline of conversion stories. So just a couple words about pluralism. And the title has religious pluralism. Uh, I'm happy to talk about that. I also want to talk just more generally about pluralism. And I, I want to frame this a little bit uh, by, uh, by, again, returning to 
the Federalist Papers and some of the founding documents, the, the founders were really concerned with a great evil that could arise in a democratic republic like ours. They called it faction, right? This is the thing that they are most worried about. And they were actually most worried about one or two factions. What they wanted to do was to multiply factions, right? Just as you wanted to multiply sources of authority by having local communities, towns, states, and then federal government, you, you, so you disperse the, the sources of authority and you actually inculcate practices of democratic government and self-rule at the local letter level. So they were, they were concerned about one or two factions growing up. This is why there's some, early on, there's some concern about political parties, right? That they would become factions in the strong sense. So what they were hoping is that you'd have lots of factions, right? And the multiplicity of them would dilute and diminish the influence of any one or two. I think part of what we rightly sense in our culture is that we've got one or two, and we're worried that one could win and we could be on the losing side, and then what's left? Right? So they're concerned about faction, and so if we were to talk about pluralism in relation to the founding, we probably have to talk about it in terms of faction. We could also talk about it in terms of, uh, in terms of levels of government. Uh, uh, I think they had some sense, even though they wouldn't have used this language, of the Catholic principle of subsidiarity, uh, which is not just about levels. It's also about certain kinds of communities having the right of self-determination, like the family and churches and, uh, and schools and governments. Um, but I think they would, they would be concerned about factions that would diminish to one or two large ones. You end up getting, the danger is that you could end up getting what Tocqueville called the tyranny of the majority, right? one majority that silences dissent and can do it, as Tocqueville rightly saw, simply through social custom. Right? It doesn't need to do it necessarily through law or edict because popular opinion is a driving force. So we connect pluralism to factions. If we connect pluralism to religions, America's been home to a diversity of religions, including us Catholics. One way to think about pluralism, I mean, there's sort of two ways to think about it, one as a resource and one as a danger. You can think that if we become too pluralistic, we don't have enough in common to really have a shared public life. Right? So one of the dangers with pluralism, even if you multiply the factions, right, you, need, you need some sense of out of many one, right? some sense that there's a sort of shared culture. So we worry increasingly uh, in the culture in American politics about whether we're splintering, or whether we have too many groups that don't have a shared culture. So you might pose the problem for American democracy by saying, can we survive pluralism? Another way to look at it is, can we sustain pluralism? Because one of the dangers of the rise of one or two really strong factions is that they would stamp out. And a healthy kind of pluralism 
where people draw from the deepest resources of their own traditions, their own cultures, their own practices, and bring those in to the public square for the good of everyone and to engage in some sort of rational debate, that sort of pluralism is enormously helpful in a democracy. So just some thoughts there about pluralism. It also strikes me, I mean, when I saw the, I was thinking again about the title and the phrase religious pluralism, it does strike me when I said earlier that, um, that we're living in a time of ideological insanity, it does strike me that we're much more secular, certainly, uh, as a people, but our political discourse is much more zealous. So there's a there's an interesting, you know, the idea was, just as the idea in the early modern period was, if we could just get these religions to keep from fighting, we'd have peace, right? Well, that hasn't worked out all that well in the centuries since. Uh, and, and some of the bloodiest wars have not been connected to religion at all. So too, there's been this thought in America that amongst secularists, that if we could just diminish the role of religion or diminish religion, then we would have civic harmony, right? Well, the interesting thing is that whether it's secular or not, and in fact, sometimes most stridently among secular people, the pluralism that you see, the advocacy for one's own group is zealous in the extreme. And it has the characteristics of ritual and liturgy at times, and certainly it has the characteristics of writing people in or out of the book of life uh, as fellow citizens. Okay, so there are some thoughts uh, about the culture and then about pluralism. Um, there are lots of good books on both the right and the left. I'm gonna, I'm, I just want to mention two, um, uh, two books, and these are both from the right. Uh, Senator Ben Sass wrote a book a few years ago called Them, uh, you know, why we hate one another and how we can heal. And then Arthur Brooks, former head of the American Enterprise Institute, wrote a book called Love, Love Your Enemies. I've heard both of them speak about these. They're both really well done books. And they're about the importance of civil discourse in a democracy and about the kind of virtues that, uh, that we, both of them writing uh, as Americans, but also as Christians, uh, that we can embody even uh, in our discourse with those who despise us and treat us horribly. The one reservation I have about both of these books is, uh, has to do with an omission, um, which is that they're primarily concerned about the character of our public discourse, our public disagreements, for the sake of civil society, and uh, in some sense for the sake of our moral souls or our character as citizens. What they don't focus a lot on is the importance of disagreement for the sake of the truth. So if you read someone like St. Augustine and hear him talking about disagreement, argument, it's clear that what's foremost in his mind about disagreement and about taking arguments or taking those, taking arguments from or taking those who disagree with me seriously has to do with the pursuit of the truth, the quest for truth. 
no matter how certain I am, sometimes uh, I can be too certain, uh, or at least the evidence that I have doesn't merit the level of certitude that I have. And even if I'm reasonably and rightly confident about a number of views that I hold, my views can always be improved. I can always get closer to the truth. I can always see the truth in a different way or in a different relationship to other truth. Moreover, how I engage with others may or may not lead them closer to the truth. There's no guarantee, of course, that if I behave in the most rational, charitable way, generous way that I can, that that will move anyone any closer to the truth at all. It's more often than not the case that they're going to be, that most people are going to be more receptive. Not all, but most people. Disagreement is important going all the way back to Aristotle because about really difficult matters, Aristotle says it's difficult to untie a knot that you're unaware of. And he speaks of philosophy as untying knots, the things that in the Greek word is aporia, a difficulty or a knot or a problem. And Aristotle thinks that the reason that he spends so much time in his works, the physics, the ethics, the metaphysics, the reason he spends so much time in his work going through what ordinary people say about happiness or about virtue, and then what all of the philosophers who have preceded him have said about happiness or virtue or nature or God, is partly because truth is is complicated. And if we don't, if we aren't aware of the complications, we aren't going to make progress. And one of the things that happens as you make more progress is that you become calmer and, and less anxious about having to be the one who defends the truth. But you, you simultaneously have a sense of how really complicated these matters are. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that you're going to affirm and deny. But once you get beyond that, right, how you understand truths, how they are to be applied here and now, are often complicated matters. And so to be aware of the difficulties through understanding what ordinary people and so-called wise people think about these matters, Aristotle thought was an indispensable step in making progress in wisdom. It's the only way we can make progress in wisdom. The happy side of this for Aristotle, as he says at one point in the Metaphysics, truth is like the proverbial door that no one can fail to hit, at least partially. So there is some truth in every position. This is actually to jump ahead to something about religious disagreement. One of the remarkable things about Aquinas, and this was standard for Orthodox Catholic theologians uh, from the patristic period up, through uh, the Middle Ages at least, is that when he's dealing with heresies, and he especially is interested in the heresies that were defined by the early church councils concerning the Trinity and the Incarnation, right? He treats heresies as having a partial apprehension of the truth to the detriment of another part, right? So all, uh, all the heresies about the two natures in one person in Christ 
all of them get one thing right, right? They either get the humanity right or the divinity right. And what they miss or, the, or they're inclined to neglect or suppress are the other passages in Scripture which highlight, if you were focused on the humanity, which highlight the divinity or vice versa. But he treats, as, as many 20th century theologians have said, he treats Revelation as a kind of symphony that where all the parts fit together and bespeak the glory and beauty of God. Heresies take an important and indispensable chunk out, and then we get ugliness and falsehood. But it is interesting that Aquinas' initial thought is, yes, it gets all of this right. But in getting all of this wrong, it gets the fundamental view of who Christ is, for example. But a heresy is a part of the truth that's been affirmed to the detriment of another part. Aristotle has this view of philosophy, that erroneous philosophical views have got something right, but they've missed something significant, which has then led them to exaggerate the one thing they have right to the point where they end up in serious error. So it's not harmless to get part of the truth wrong to the detriment of another part. But it does mean that you have for Aristotle in philosophy and for Aquinas in theology, you have what they might have called dialectical starting points for talking with other people. So the importance in disagreement and you know, we can talk about the moral virtues that we may need or not need to engage with people who are deeply hostile to our views. If you set that aside, everybody in the Catholic tradition, in the Thomas tradition, from the pagan philosophers that Aquinas, uh, Aquinas uh, credits with having uh, uh, achieved a great deal of truth, all the way up to contemporary followers of Thomas today, all of them think that disagreement and taking arguments seriously is indispensable to getting at the truth, to making progress in the truth. That means, in a sense, whether you, are, whether you can do this with the other person who's disagreeing with you in the room or not, you might just have to walk away. Uh, at some point, you ought to cool off and take the argument seriously and think it through and be able to say, if you can find anything in it, not as a way of, of wishing away the disagreement. See what you can discern in it that's true. I mean, we believe as Catholics that our intellects are ordered to truth. Now, we also believe that through sin, and not primarily the sins of the body or the passions, but spiritual sins, right? like pride, envy, and wrath, our intellects can become deeply warped and distorted. If I care more about defending my truth than the truth, I'm in trouble. This is one of the marks of philosophy in the ancient world, starting with Socrates. Socrates is not concerned about what is, his private views. He's concerned about what can be defended publicly in the Agora, what anyone can recognize and come to defend or object to. So one of the one of the really important elements in asceticism, 
in the habit of self-denial is, is a kind of fasting from an addiction to my own opinions. This will keep us, even if we have orthodox belief, it will keep us from growing closer to the truth, who is God. I cannot be primarily concerned about defending the truth because it's my truth, or even because it's my church's truth, if the accent is on mine. This is an absolutely fundamental moral orientation that emerges in Greek philosophy and is accentuated in the Catholic tradition in the Middle Ages right up to today. One of the things that can help me to purge myself from an addiction to the opinions that are mine is to take other arguments seriously and to develop a liking for taking arguments seriously, maybe especially when those arguments are opposed to my own. That doesn't mean that I'm holding my convictions in abeyance. I still believe what I believe until I'm convinced otherwise. And I'm likely to be convinced otherwise about lots of little things. And sometimes those amount to big things where I realize even if I, if my fundamental orientation or worldview is not altered, I think, you know, I had some things really wrong. That's liberating. That's getting closer to the truth. Digging in and defending the truth at all costs because it's mine is not going to get me anywhere closer. I do have a responsibility, not just to listen to other arguments, but to say what I think and why I think it. And that's a matter of giving arguments. And if someone's not taking the argument seriously, you have to push a little bit to try and get them to take it seriously. Right? You don't just give up because someone disagrees with the argument you're making. But learning how to make good, compelling arguments is partly learning how to listen and see what you can hear in an opponent's argument that you might actually be able to embrace, or at least you can say, oh, now I, I never understood where this crazy idea was coming from. Now I have an idea of what one of the roots is. That I, and I can sort of understand why someone might have that instinct, or someone from this background might think that. So in the uh, Aquinas, if you've read Aquinas, how many of you have read anything by Aquinas? A little bit. So if you read, don't feel compelled, but if you haven't, that's fine. At some point, read Aquinas. Just open it up and look at the Summa. It's, it's not easy stylistically to read, right? Question, you get a bunch of objections, sometimes a really long list of objections. Then you get Aquinas' view, which usually has four or five distinctions in it, so that you might start out and he gives you a clear answer. Does God exist? Yes. Okay, good. I'm relieved to think that Aquinas affirms that God exists. But then he might give you a bunch of distinctions about how we can know this or not know this. And then he'll go back and respond to those objections. It's really hard to read. It's cumbersome for us. It's not a good model for uh, for us to write college papers or op-ed pieces or books today. But the interesting thing about, this is called the disputed question model of writing, is that this reflected what was going on live and in action in the universities, in Paris and elsewhere, where Aquinas was a teacher. And there, they had what are called quod liberal sessions. Quod liberal means whatever you want. So if you are a master, a teacher, 
you would stand up in front of a group of 20, 30, 40, 50 really rowdy undergraduate students whose goal would be to trick you or undermine you. So they'd throw out a question and you have to say what your view is and then they start listing objections. And you don't have a pen and paper, you gotta keep them all up here. And you resolve the question and then you come back and respond to each of their objections. This is a, it's a, it's a kind of out of control version of the platonic dialogue, right? It's sort of a platonic dialogue on steroids or crack or something, right? So where, where Socrates has got two or three people, Socrates is really in control there. This is where the questions are coming from all over the place. And you had, you had students who would be devotees of the teacher down the street, who's a Franciscan and not a Dominican, right? So they all come in and disrupt the Dominican session, start asking obnoxious questions uh, and, and listing objections. So this disputed question model, which looks to us like, oh man, I can't keep up with this, it's put me to sleep the first time you try to read it, is actually a reflection of a, of a highly dramatic sort of conversation where lots of disagreements are aired. In fact, there's in principle no limit to the types of questions that could be asked. Now, they shared a broad philosophical framework, so they're drawing from, but the questions about that could go anywhere. So, there's a model of public debate here, and it does get raucous at times. But you can't let the raucousness or the fact that someone you don't like just insulted you distract you from focusing on the argument and making the good argument, right? And of making the distinctions that need to be made so that you can actually salvage and agree with what's true in what your opponents have said. In fact, rhetorically, one of the best moves in a disagreement is to show the person who's objecting to you, now this might make them more irritated than they were to start with, that you've understood their objection better than they have. And, and again, this shouldn't just be to display your own intellectual dexterity, right? But if you can show that you understand the source of the objection, you understand nuances in the objection that haven't been stated at all, and you're willing to concede this part, but of course your argument really wasn't about that, it's about this. This is also being able to listen to your opponent and learn from and understand the source of the disagreement is also a way to win a debate. If you do it in a civil and friendly way and not in a public way where you're insulting one another, this is part of what got Galileo in such trouble. I mean, they're in the church, it's not, sort of bizarre that we had this huge fight over, over the sun and the earth. Uh, but you know, Galileo was not well liked because he went around Rome in, in the salons just shooting down everybody and making them look like idiots because he was so rhetorically adept at running circles around the objectors. Not the best way to do this. But it is a way to win a debate. And if you have people sitting there who are actually interested in argument, they're going to be much more impressed if you can actually analyze the assumptions of the objection, its implications, things that were said about it, and you can say, sure, I agree with this, this, and this, but here's where the real disagreement is. If you can do that in a civil way, sitting across the table at a bar from somebody, right, in a friendly way, and maybe in a slower way so that it doesn't look like you're performing intellectually, you might actually win over somebody. 
So this public debate, this willingness to take on every conceivable opposing argument is crucial to Aquinas' entire calling. Let me say just a couple other things about this in Aquinas. So one of the interesting things is that, I mean, I mentioned Galileo. Galileo was not that, uh, um, you know, what's at the center of the universe is, was not any big threat to the Christian religion. Darwin is a big threat, but not primarily because of a literal reading of the six days of creation. Augustine had argued way back when against a six-day creation. He's, he's dangerous because you've got a reductionist view that seems to account for everything in human nature without having to invoke a soul or God or anything. You seem to have a comprehensive account. The other place, interestingly, where this happened historically is with Aristotle. That's going to seem very surprising to you because I've just been quoting Aristotle. Aquinas quotes Aristotle. The church commends Aristotle to our reading and study. But in the late 12th and 13th century, Aristotle was, or in the mid-12th century, Aristotle was virtually unknown in the Christian West. These texts start coming in, trade routes open up, these translations are coming from Spain, and then they're coming from uh, Sicily, and then through Naples, where Aquinas studied very early in his life, and on into Italy and into the rest of Europe. Why is this a problem? Christian thinkers, philosophers, theologians, poets, had worked out a pretty comprehensive view of the universe that was compatible with scripture and fragments from the Stoics, from Plato, and then a lot from Augustine. And in comes, in comes the entirety of the corpus of the writings of Aristotle on logic, physics, the soul, She's working on Aristotle. Uh, she, she knows he's dangerous. Ethics, politics, metaphysics, everything. Right? Aristotle comes in with a comprehensive worldview that doesn't mention God as a creator. There is a God in there. Doesn't mention God as a creator. Doesn't mention sin. Doesn't mention redemption. Doesn't mention the Trinity, the incarnation, the sacraments, anything. It seems to offer an account of the world and of how to live happily in it that doesn't need the gospel. Also, it comes in with detailed, comedy, uh, detailed commentaries from Islamic and Jewish thinkers who for centuries have been trying to incorporate Aristotle into their own views. This, this is a, a, a moment of crisis in the Christian West. And you had sort of two extreme positions that developed. One view was... And this was the early church view because the, the bishops didn't know what this stuff was doing. We're not going to allow you to read Aristotle or teach Aristotle in the universe. Very early on in the 13th century. Right, then it opens up. And then there are people, Christians, who say, what we need to do is to attack this, to show that it's incomplete, that it's erroneous, and that the gospel is victorious. But there's a smaller group that thinks, hey, we don't like dealing with these bishops and these theologians. We just like to do philosophy. And Aristotle's going to give us a chance just to do philosophy without having to worry about theology. We can separate it out completely. What does Aquinas do in the middle of this? The example before him is Albert the Great, who started reading not only Aristotle, but all the Arab commentaries. Aquinas decides, 
at a very busy point in his career, when he's got lots of teaching duties, to write detailed line-by-line commentaries on all the works of Aristotle to get his hands on. Why? Because he wants to understand it before he judges whether it's true or false. And he wants to figure out, if it is true, how it can be incorporated within Christian theology. Why? Because his working assumption is truth does not contradict truth. And the God who reveals himself in Scripture is the same God who reveals himself through the entire natural world and to our natural reason. These things are ultimately compatible. As Aquinas wonderfully says at one point about arguments seeming to come from reason to refute theology, whether these come from other religions or from unbelievers. He says, we know that truth cannot contradict truth, and so it is possible to answer these objections. I love the combined confidence of, and humility in Aquinas's. it is possible. He doesn't say, I've got the answer right now, or you're going to have it tomorrow. Right? It might take a long time to figure out how to respond to certain kinds of objections adequately. Again, in the interim, we don't give up on our faith. We say, yeah, I'm not sure what to say about that. Here's what I think so far. But because I can't refute it completely doesn't mean I give up my faith. Because I know that over time, I trust and I hope that over time, truth is going to come together, right? And we'll see things over time. So the wonderful confidence and humility in Aquinas in saying it is... Aquinas also thinks that, and this he gets from Aristotle, sort of mentioned this, um, that the best argument, I'm not going to go into this in detail because it is... It is uh, it's from Aristotle's physics, and the arguments are kind of complicated, but he takes up a question about change, and he thinks change is mainly, in our experience, about qualitative change, so things go from hot to cold. Right? They go from one opposite to the other. So you've got to have a quality and then a privation. The thing's hot, it's not cold. Right? It's got a quality and it's got a, it can move. And then there's got to be some material subject in which these changes happen. So he ends up with the view that there are three principles. Matter, some physical thing, form or quality, and privation. But he's going through, he started, for there'll be a quiz on that at the end, what are the three principles? He starts with two really extreme views. One from Parmenides, who says that between being and non-being, there's a gulf that can't be bridged. So whatever is, must always be. There can be no change. So Parmenides gives this very abstract metaphysical argument that denies change. Heraclitus, on the other hand, looks around the world and thinks, oh, every time I look back, things have changed. Right? This is a Greek phrase, pantorei, all things flow. One of his sayings is you can never step in the same river twice. Right? And this is his view of all experience. Right? So he denies any stability. And so what Aristotle does is to give this argument, well, we can make sense out of change, right? There are these qualitative changes, and then there are the changes when things are destroyed, like an entire substance. Talks about that. And then at the end, he comes back, and he tries to show where and why Parmenides and Heraclitus went wrong, and what was true in each of their views. This is the most convincing way to argue, is to argue by not just proving your point, but by showing where the other views went wrong. So in religious discourse for Aquinas, or in 
political disagreements or philosophical disagreements, Aquinas is going to say, find where you can the point of shared agreement. It might just be a shared agreement about a text, right? So Aquinas says at the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles, right, with, with the Jewish people, we use the Old Testament. With he Christian heretics, we use the New Testament. Right? We want to always argue, if we can, on the basis of something that's shared, that we both agree upon. Right? He says, if the disagreements get worse, then we have recourse to natural reason, which everyone has. And in fact, the Dominicans were uh, fond of saying that you really, your best argument should argue from within the tradition of your opponent. So you want to try and show what you affirm in there, and then if you can point out contradictions in there, right? Things that might be better explained by your own tradition. But that is at least showing an intellectual respect to your opponent. Know their sources. Many times you can't know them as well as they do, but you can begin to know them if you're in a sustained conversation with them. So disagreement ought to begin wherever possible by some shared framework, right? Something where we say, yo, we agree on this, even if we don't agree how to interpret it. That's Aquinas' first point, right? The other point, uh, which I've already made, is that the best kind of account in an argument is one that tries to make sense of the view of your opponent and shows how it might even be more fully embraced by adopting a, a more adequate view of the truth, okay? a more adequate view of faith and the religious life. This is a way of disagreeing in what can be at least some of the time an agreeable way, right? but without losing hold of the truth. Aquinas has no notion that we ought to just pretend that we all agree about everything. And that's how we solve religious or political differences. He thinks that is to disrespect our interlocutor, not to take seriously the views that they have. To wish away the disagreements is not to take seriously their attempt to get at the truth. So we want to engage those views, but we have a burden to be as informed as we can about those views and not immediately dismissive of those views, at least until we know them fairly well. The last thing I want to say about this, and then I'll, uh, I'll stop, um, is that where you can develop friendships, I feel like we all sort of have obligations. We have obligations to, to fight uh, for what we take to be true and good. I think we also have obligations where we can to, um, to, um, to foster a friendship or friendships with someone or some group of people who disagree with me. I think it's really important. I know that whenever I've had leadership positions, I always wanted someone in the room who was going to argue if everybody was starting to agree too quickly, if there was somebody who was contrary or slightly theologically off the rest of the group, I always wanted that person in the room. Because it, the, the little thing that goes on in your head is if we all agree there's got to be something we're missing, right? If we're thinking about arguments, right, and, and, and positions and so forth. If we all agree, it can be wonderful. 
in terms of uh, friendship and, um, and enjoyment of time together, building of community. But we're thinking about arguments. You want someone in the room. You want someone at the table. And it can be someone who's agree, who agrees with you who's just really good at coming up with opposing arguments. That's important for us. And it's important for us to have friendships, I think especially today, it's important for us to have friendships that are not constructed or eliminated by going through an ideological checklist. Sometimes there are serious disagreements that you can't overcome. And those might not just be theoretical, but practical disagreements very often, right? Those are, those are much more difficult and very painful. But you shouldn't be trying to make friends, and you shouldn't keep friends, only on the basis of an ideological checklist. Our view of the truth as, as Catholics is that it's, it's comprehensive. Everything that's true fits in there. We get things wrong a lot. Right? So it doesn't mean just everybody say what's true and we'll all affirm the 80 contradictory propositions that are put on the board. But we do believe that everything that's true has a place. And we believe that every person we encounter, that God is offering grace to move that person and indeed to move us from where we are now to closer to the truth. So friendship in truth, and friendship in truth that attempts to overcome disagreement, but doesn't insist upon the overcoming of disagreement as a bedrock starting point. Sometimes it's only through friendships over long periods that people come to see things differently, that our friends come to see things differently we're trying to present, and that, if we're honest, we see differently because of the friends we've had whom we disagreed with at various points. Thank you. Happy to, happy to take any questions. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. so sometimes, whether it's your religion or any other topic, sometimes when people hold hostile opinions towards it as a result of their past experience, experiences with them, yeah. I use this on appropriate topics like religion to speak for these people who have had past experiences. Right. Um, yeah, the, uh, I was reading, a, I, I heard at American Enterprise Institute a couple of weeks back, Yuval Levin, who's a really great political commentator, and Russell Moore, who's a, a very prominent Baptist figure, and Russell was saying something in the Baptist world about if, um, if someone comes up to him and says, don't you think we really need to get rid of this in the church? It's, it's really oppressive. Or conversely, you know, what, what's the church's view about Satanism and how are we going to teach it to the kids? Right? He says, what I, when he hears those two things, he thinks the first person's had a bad experience of one kind and the other person's had a bad experience of another kind. Right? Um, the, the first person has been in an overly authoritarian and, uh, and dictatorial environment. The other person's worried about chaos. These are both legitimate worries, right? And so it is something that, um, it is something I think we need to be attuned to when we're talking to people where you don't want to say, you want to avoid being psychologically condescending toward people because you don't want to say, well, I know why you're saying this. 
you had this bad experience, and that's the only reason you think this, as if there isn't actually an argument there, right? So you don't want to reduce people, just as we would not want to be reduced, to our history or our psychology when we're talking with people. But I think to be aware of that, uh, and, um, you know, sometimes if you know that it's, it's, it's um, that that's a flashpoint, right, it's better just not to argue because it's not, it's not really an argument. And the argument is just going to, it's just going to get more shrill and more angry. That does nobody any good. It doesn't mean you agree with the person, right? But you, you back off and diffuse it. It's just not, that's just not an argument, right? If, um, if so, and we can find ourselves being this way sometimes, right? Getting so worked up about something and we realize later, man, I was a little out of control there. Because uh, I was overheated about a disagreement. And these usually happen with friends and family members, right? Or classmates, or people were uh, roommates, right? People were sort of, in some sense, stuck with, right? For good or for ill, and usually for both. Um, and so there's a lot more going on there than just the argument. And uh, it's good for us to back off when we, when we realize that's what our motive is, if we do. And sometimes it's good to back off. Sometimes it's, it's it, you know, you can find ways of, uh, I mean, can you find ways of affirming that what happened there was really wrong, right? I mean, that's, that's, um, that's sometimes the most important thing you can do in a setting like that. If there was a serious injustice in the church or elsewhere, say, so yeah, that was horrible. And the fact that it, it, something can happen to someone and block them from making progress, right, in the spiritual life, it is a serious evil. Um, so acknowledging when there have been problems, I think if we can be honest about, um, about evils in the church and about disorders in our parish, in our lives, that... I mean, that's disarming to people who come in thinking that we're going to be defensive about it, right? And even apart from that sort of rhetorical context, it's just the right thing to do, to be honest about evils and not to defend things that really we should not defend. So, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but I think you, you know, and if over time you can become friends with a person where that's not front and center, then you get other ways to interact, Right? I mean, friendship does give you that. It gives you that grace and enables you to offer that to someone else, right? That it's not just a matter of all or nothing argument. Yes? Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hibbs, for your uh, talk. Um, my question has to do with when we're talking with people, um, I find what's really difficult nowadays is that we disagree on just basic principles, like first principles of things. Yeah. So um, if someone presents an argument, even something as simple as like what what is a person or just kind of terms, defining terms, um, oftentimes people aren't on the same page. So I guess my question would be if you are um, confronted with some kind of argument like that and you want to kind of go back to first principles to be able to kind of be on the same page about things. Do you do that? In which case the person might not really respond. They might say, well, I'm not talking about that. I'm trying to right. kind of talk about this other issue. Kind of how, how do you go about that? Because I think that's a growing problem. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's hard to figure out a general rule because it really, you know, in in the situation, um, you might say, yeah, okay, here's I need to talk about natural law, or I need to talk about uh, the incarnation, or I need to talk about sin or grace. Um, or even just interrupt the principle of the unicity of truth. Yeah. Or the principle of non-contradiction. Yeah. Right. You know, and sometimes you just you you've just gotta try to lay that out for people and say, no, that's not how I understand it. Here's how I understand it. I think presenting it in a way where you say, okay, I, I think I understand what you're saying, and but here's what if you looked at it this way? You might not use those words, but trying to get I think to, to the extent that we can get adept enough at this that we can surprise people with the sort of things we bring to bear. So they think we're going to say this and we say something else, not because the, the other thing is not, uh, is, um, is less challenging, but it, it, we don't have a lot of wonder in, in our culture anymore. And we especially don't have a lot of wonder in our intellectual lives. Uh, and to the extent that we can make people say, huh, I never really, that's what you think, or that's what the church teaches about that. I mean, sometimes you can't do that because it just is what the person thinks and they hate it or they disagree with it, right? So you, you can't always do that. Uh, and sometimes you need to go to uh, first principles. Uh, and, um, you know, I think very little happens productively in, in the actual moment of argument. It's, it's, it's surprising how little change actually goes on when people are actually arguing, unless you've got something that you're, it's not just going back and forth, argument, counter-argument. And this is, I think, the genius of Aquinas saying, find something that you share in common. So let's talk about a book, or let's talk about this poem, or let's talk about this chapter of Mark, or something like that where, where it's not, I'm not, I'm not feeling like if I lose this argument with you, I'm losing something more than the argument. Right. Um, so it, sometimes an, in, an indirect way, getting people to focus on something in common, um, I, I, I don't use, I've reviewed films for a number of years and I, I like using film as a way of talking about philosophy, but I partly like showing clips in uh, in some settings, uh, film clips, because everybody can look at it and say, here's what I think about that. And, and it also hits you on not just a purely cerebral level, imagination, emotion, but people can sometimes come to see things and articulate things that they weren't aware of uh, in ways that can be enormously persuasive in moving them in a certain direction, right? Um, argument can do that too, but only if you, the people really want to learn from the argument. I mean, sometimes you're in an argument and you just have to disagree, right? You just say, no, that isn't how I see it. That's not my view. That's not the view of Aquinas. That's not the view of the church, whatever it might be, right? Um, but people only usually profit from argument if they're actually engaged in trying to seek the truth through argument. And... You know, sad thing is we don't, we increasingly in places where this ought to happen most vibrantly in universities, I mean, students are really afraid to speak in class because of all of the, the constant monitoring about everything. 
And so, um, yeah, I mean, I have to work as a professor to try and create conditions where people can speak freely about arguments. Um, uh, but you need some sort of context for arguments to take root. Otherwise, it's just a fight. Sometimes you mix them. I mean, really smart people can get really angry uh, and argue, and that can be really profitable. But most ordinary people, if they're super angry as they're arguing, it's not going anywhere. You actually have to be almost really brilliant to survive anger in the midst of an argument and have it go somewhere. Uh, I, I can't do it, I'm not that brilliant. But I've seen people who can, I'm like, that's amazing. But, mo but especially people who aren't trained in argument, the, the anger is, is just going to undermine reason completely. So if you find yourself getting pulled further and further into that, I mean, sometimes you're doing it because there are other people listening, whatever. But it's best to kind of exit out of that and find and live to argue another better day right, with people. Uh, where, where, there is, where there are actually the conditions for rational agreement and rational disagreement. Yeah. Thank you so much again, uh, Professor, Professor, for coming out. Uh, I have a quick question regarding uh, something that you briefly touched on earlier regarding, I guess, the appropriate uh, forum for like debate and, dis and disagreement and, ar and argument and dialect. Uh, here on, on college campuses, most times when we find ourselves in scenarios where um, we find that we're talking to someone who, you know, we, we realize isn't hold the same um, ideological position or, or opinion, uh, we've, oftentimes those scenarios are not the most conducive scenarios to have like a civil you know, yeah. debate or an argument about that. So my question is, uh, when we find ourselves in those scenarios, um, particularly when it comes to like hot, hot topic issues, right. is it better to avoid those situations? Or would you say we, have, we still have the duty to still you know, try to interact and discuss. So I think this is this is a matter of prudential judgment, right? There's no algorithm here. We do have duties to speak the truth. We don't have a duty to speak all the truth everywhere to everybody. Uh, and whatever duty we have, as Aristotle and Aquinas repeatedly say when they're talking about moral principles or virtues, it's only courage if you do it in the right way, at the right time, with the right measure, with the right people. So you might have a duty of fraternal correction to your roommate, but to offer that fraternal correction right, in, in the middle of a meal with 30 other people sitting around, at the highest volume you can announce the thing that you think is screwing up your roommate's life, that's not... Courage, that's not truthfulness, that's vice. Every duty that we perform, every virtue we practice has to be informed by prudence. Prudence doesn't mean just thinking about your own safety. It means doing it in the right way. So when we're engaging with people, I mean, there, there are times, right, when you stand up and say, this is what I think, and here's why I think it. And sometimes that comes better as a kind of testimony than it does as a denouncing argument. Right? 
particularly if, if tempers have flared. Sometimes not even that is going to happen. Um, and it's not clear exactly what to do in those matters. And sometimes, you, I think sometimes you have an obligation to walk away. We also have to realize that we are, we are, are living in a toxic ideological social media environment where anybody can be recording or filming everything that you're saying. And that can get edited, that can get used, that can, that can ruin you right? uh, if you're not careful. Because things can get twisted out of context. It probably won't ruin you unless you say something really stupid. But it can do you harm even if you're saying things that are kind of sound, depending upon the environment you're living in and who's attuned to what, right? So I, I don't think we have an obligation always and everywhere to engage in argument with everyone. Uh, we certainly have never had that, but I think these are some of the prudential things that you have to take into account. When to do this, when it's going to be helpful to do it, right, for the people you're disagreeing with, uh, sometimes there really has to be just disagreement and people are unhappy, right? But you also want to be careful about the social media environment that we're living in, not to allow yourself to get pulled into something where you're going to be pushed towards saying things you might not otherwise say if you were thinking clearly and not under pressure, and that could be, um, could be used against you in some way, right? Um, uh, I mean, we... We want to be in the habit of saying things that are true and clear and inviting, right? But we all know when things get heated, right? We can say things that we might later regret. It's not a good idea to, to put yourself, especially if you know you're prone to that. It's not a good idea, even if you think it's the heroic thing to do, to do that, especially since it's probably going to have no good effect. Um, so... I think there are lots of prudential questions here uh, about how we engage. But obviously, the better we know what the arguments are, the better we know the, the sort of in, intellectual influences on someone who's disagreeing with us, the better the chance we can make an intelligent response that isn't just people arguing, screaming past one another. Uh, I don't know if that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, Professor. Uh, once again, uh, thank you for talking. I really enjoyed it. Um, one question had to do underneath the topic of, in an argument, um, to use your intellect and your kindness or whatever to understand where that's coming from. And you like, truly have like, an interpersonal like, conversation with someone and to help understand that. How do you avoid making assumptions um, in that argument? So again, sometimes it's just an argument and you just listen to the premises and you respond. That seems false to me. This seems right to me. Here's why. Here's why I don't think that follows. That's just making arguments about the argument. And, and even if uh, I think it's right that we need to take into account the larger context and um, the, um, uh, the, what the person who's disagreeing with us is bringing with him or her in the disagreement, um, we, we do want to take the argument seriously, right? So uh, uh, I think the only way you avoid making assumptions uh, is by over time getting to know someone. You know, if, if you're taking trying to take into account what 
what other things are um, intellectually or otherwise influencing what someone is saying or influencing what you were saying, it, it takes time to figure that out, right? And I think you just want to let, uh, unless the situation is really hostile, you just want to let the person know that you're interested in that. I don't, I don't understand why you say this, right? Or I, I sort of understand this. Is this, is this what you mean? And if so, here's, here's why I don't think that's right. right? Um, I think that's important. You know, the, uh, the thing I want to end on um, we're not just becoming a, a secular culture, we're becoming a deeply theologically illiterate culture. And this is true even for lots of believers. We just don't, we've lost a rich vocabulary for talking about sin and salvation, for talking about good and evil talking about friendship, we're talking about love, we're talking about marriage, we're talking about children. And, and a lot of times we just don't even know basic Catholic teachings or much about Scripture. I can say this with certainty. We all have an obligation to get educated, to become literate about our faith and about other religions that, particularly the Jewish religion, which ours grew out of, uh, if we can become more literate, more informed, if we come, for Aquinas, this is all about getting at truth, but it's finally all about wisdom. It's about having a sense of what it means to be human, what that means for my role as child, a sibling, a student, a citizen, a spouse, a parent, what my sense of calling is. Wisdom is about understanding my place within the whole of God's creation, about understanding what it has to do, how we ought to live together, how we ought to live together with other people who have variety opinions, wisdom is something that we ought all, in whatever measure we can, to be devoted to. We ought to want to understand more deeply what the truth is about God, what the truth is about creation, what the truth is about human nature, what the truth is about virtue and love, sin, misery, tragedy, happiness. We've got to have souls that are open to becoming wise about all those fundamental human things that are there in great tragedy and that are there even today in movies and television shows that we could watch in the next two hours. Not as, not handled all that well in many cases, but those issues are there. Suffering, misery, happiness, love, family, the more that we can grow in wisdom, the more we're going to be able to draw upon in disagreements. Right? I mean, one of the weird things about how we think about this stuff, and I do it too, is okay, I'm just going to refute this person because why? Because I know everything already. Right? Well, no, I wouldn't. If someone asked me, do you know everything? I said, of course not. But the assumption is that I'm in a pretty good position to refute other people's positions. Well, I'd be in a lot better position if I knew a lot. 
right? And so one of the things that you all, especially as students, you have your majors, you have your internships, you have your career paths, but particularly as Catholic students, one of the things you're called to is to grow in wisdom. And that, that may not mean, you know, reading Aquinas for an hour a day, it probably won't for any of you, but it, it means having a somewhat active reading life where you're learning things and where you're engaged in conversations like the ones that the Thomistic Institute will bring to your campus. I mean, it's a, it's a good sign that you're here unless you're just getting extra credit. I don't know who would give you extra credit at West Virginia for this, but maybe somebody would. But uh, but your, your calling really, especially in this time where you're college students, is to grow in wisdom. And to grow in wisdom and, and in love of the truth. Uh, and if you do that, you're not always going to refute. You're never always going to refute people. You're not always going to know what to say, but you're going to have a much better capacity to engage with people who disagree with you uh, in ways that help you to grow intellectually and sometimes at least help them to grow intellectually. Thanks.